0: It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This is episode 148. The second most handsome doctor in North America is back with us, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. Uh, it's been a little while, hasn't it? <laughs> it really has. I've been on a, a kick just uh, interviewing and rapping with any you know all the heavy hitters of the strength and conditioning field. that has been fun. Uh, we're not running out of content. I just want to let the internet know we can it's we can that these pe- we can make shit up forever. So you know, <laughs> <laughs> well these people these people are busy, right? So like, um, I've got a upcoming podcast with uh, Daniel Lieberman who wrote the book Exercise, recorded with Ponzer, and it, but it's like you got to plan these things months in advance because they're like actually doing stuff; they're not just sitting around waiting to get on a podcast. Uh, so, and we want to keep bringing you content. So, in any case, this, that's not why we brought Austin back. We just the internet wanted you. And, uh, I just haven't had that much to is. say for a
1: while, you know, so.
0: <laughs> well, I liked when I introduced you. You had like a 30-second sigh that just overlapped. <laughs> I don't know if the audio is going to pick that up, but that's that's funny. Yeah. This podcast is brought to you by us. We don't do any sort of ad reads or anything <laughs> like that, uh, although I will say that our support box staff, I, I think what they're doing is they're just leaving more of these social media influencer campaign things in my inbox and just waiting for me to see them and get triggered like like a manscaped thing or or,
1: or whatever (laughs) yes all the all the influencer pitches that yeah the other thing is how annoyingly persistent these people are so i typically ignore them and then you know a few days or a week later hey just checking in to see if you got my last email it's like gonna ignore this one too (laughs)
0: yeah and it doesn't even stop in in the emails i get them in my dms too like doctor's best slid in my dms and they were like hey do you want to promote uh a new multivitamin that's coming out and i was like no, and I have other problems. Like one, your brand name is Doctor's Best. That insinuates that you have other clinicians, physicians who are you know behind your brand. Like just use them to show your product. Two, like what recent discoveries in the micronutrient, you know, in, in multivitamin sort of research have, have come out? Because uh, as far as I can tell, based on all the research, most people do not need to take a multivitamin and. Inf- because they don't do anything meaning that it doesn't improve health outcomes doesn't reduce the risk of you know certain disease processes there are a handful of folks you know relatively small percentage of folks who are at risk of a bona fide micronutrient or vitamin deficiency due to like a gi surgery or procedure or other medical condition and those folks are prescribed multivitamins but otherwise if you're generally healthy um, or even if you have a chronic comorbidity that doesn't really affect absorption um, of food from the gut you know Taking a multivitamin doesn't do anything, and there's a risk of contamination plus costs. So uh, if you haven't yet heard one of my rants on multivitamins, that's it. I don't recommend multivitamins even for very, very active individuals. That's Just the idea of taking more vitamins than needed is, uh, yeah, not health-promoting. In fact, the opposite uh, in some cases. I, I don't think taking a multivitamin is necessarily harmful to your health, uh, provided that it's not contaminated and provided that you're not like mega dosing certain vitamins, but it's certainly not helping anything. So no benefit and some element of risk, uh, generally a bad sort of risk benefit ratio, 10 out of 10, wouldn't recommend? Okay. Didn't mean to start this with a rant, but uh, here we are. Uh, Other updates. So we are getting back into the apparel game in a big way. Basically we've hired some new people to step up our apparel side. Cause basically what we do is we would make a run of shirts and then run out of shirts or gear or whatever. And then people would be like, when are you, when are you coming back in stock? And it's like, well, yeah, got to plan this a little bit better, but, uh, realize we need to get some, uh, sort of dedicated uh, staff on that. So, New shirt designs, new apparel is going to be dropping. Uh, this is the middle of July; should be by the end of the month. So make sure to keep a lookout for that. We'll be doing uh, some cool new stuff on in that end, and then uh, yeah, let's just let's just get into this. So life update,
1: Doctor Baraki. Is back. What's uh what's going on, man? Everything okay? Are you doing okay? Yeah, I'm good. Uh doing my normal thing, working in the hospital and and uh working on all these other side projects we have going when I'm not in the hospital. I was fortunate enough to recently see both you and Leo when you guys came and uh, I guess my wife organized a big surprise birthday for me earlier this week. <laughs> earlier this month. Yeah, she's uh she
0: was she went behind her back and she yeah. said, We're gonna get Austin's friends <laughs> to come hang out
1: she got me good yeah. uh, and then uh and then yeah we got a we got our first seminar back on the circuit coming up soon in san antonio so we're gonna have the whole crew uh, the band's getting back together again as I said yeah, that's
0: right it's a reunion tour <laughs> uh yeah we're gonna be in san antonio here in about three weeks uh and then philadelphia in october and then november uh we'll be in at alan thrall's place in sacramento train untamed so We haven't done a seminar. It's, man, has it been a year?
1: No, we did some over the winter during like little pockets of uh, downtrends in COVID numbers and things like that here. We snuck a a few here and there, but uh, not consistently since last year, yeah.
0: It's been an entire gestational period, I think, since
1: we've
0: (laughs) done a a seminar. And um, like most of our uh, uh, seminar material, things keep getting updated over time. I think this is probably... This is probably not as big of a change from maybe our very first seminar to our second seminar. Sure. <laughs> I just think that was like, okay, we here are all our objectives. Here's how we failed. Here's how we can make it better. But uh since we've had so much downtime, a lot of our stuff's gotten
1: updated. What uh
0: what are you most excited about for the upcoming seminar?
1: Uh I think probably the biggest a topic that is going to be revamped and how it's presented and taught is going to be the obesity discussion. And, yeah. you know, we've been going back and forth a lot on this. I know I've probably been annoying you with how much I'm prodding you on the topic of how how we pitch this to people and how we frame it. And, and I think that there's, you know, some differences in how, you know, you might communicate the topic to, you know, a, a, uh, an audience who is already like heavily bought into the fitness gym training scene compared to like, quote unquote, gen pop. But I sure. think that, Regardless, I think the overarching concepts that we're hoping to get across are going to be kind of updated, brought more into line with like kind of the the current best practices. And, uh, you know, it's it actually ends up being a pretty stark departure from a lot of the conversation around a, you know, obesity, its causes and how you approach it um, that you hear in the fitness gym bro world. You know, people who are already bought into this and and feel like, you know, they are. Uh, you know, better people because they're able to exert, you know, such self-control and stuff like that, that, you know, that's like a common way that this stuff gets discussed and just, you know, count macros harder and things like that. Uh, So we're going to be framing and discussing this, uh, I think, in a way that is more accurate or closer to uh, reality for, for most of the general population and not just, you know, towards already highly motivated gym bro folks.
0: Yeah, I mean the people who come to our seminars in general are highly motivated folks. Uh, in in general, they're very active. They're into already bought into exercise. They are already knowledgeable, uh, if not actively participating in health promoting dietary patterns. Um, there may need to be some additional refinement there to maximize or Or improve their own uh, health trajectory and health span um, or or increase their fund of knowledge to uh, with working with others to improve their health span or improve their performance uh, from a you know dietary uh, intervention perspective or from a training perspective or from some of the other topics that we cover so previously in our obesity lecture, the way we kind of introduced this topic, which was after the behavioral change, after sarcopenia, after like what is health um, lectures, we were principally talking about energy balance. Um, and I think we probably focused a little too much on downstream sort of inputs into energy balance. So this is an overview. Like he, what we're talking about is energy balance is the relationship between energy intake and energy expenditure. And we would focus on the biological, psychological, social, and environmental sort of factors that go into this sort of energy balance or energy imbalance. Now, the way we're kind of moving into describing this and addressing it, um, I think, makes more sense. It's more upstream. We're talking about higher level things. And I think it just makes it easier to understand, easier to communicate, and then ultimately easier to sort of guide management. So what do you do? So the 10,000 foot view here is that we more view this as an appetite dysregulation problem rather than just a uh, than try to describe all these downstream mechanisms. So, when we view this from an appetite dysregulation standpoint, there are certain modifiable and then non modifiable factors. We can't really modify somebody's genetics, but we can certainly mod- try to modify their environment, uh, not necessarily all aspects of their environment that's kind of limited uh, by the individual, maybe their socioeconomic status, et cetera, but certain aspects of their immediate you know sort of eating environment or uh, at, at a larger level their food environment uh, there's lifestyle stuff that we can employ uh, you know depending on. Uh, the individual. And so by correcting or trying to improve this appetite dysregulation uh, thing, then we get people who are more satiated, so more full, will tend to eat less and, and lower their sort of dietary intervention, RPE, make it easier for them um, to uh, eat uh, less, consume less energy. and And, and Basically, when you look at it through that lens, um, obesity is sort of like this multifaceted disease. It's it's an umbrella term for a bunch of different types of different causes of that disease. So there are straight up pure genetic causes of obesity. Uh, so like leptin resistance, that genetic uh, cause, there are, you know, things that are more uh, related to like a food addiction thing, although that's a controversial term, there are things related uh, more to mood disorders and uh, the classification of which is uh, again, an active area of research. So, uh, but we think if you, we look at it through this appetite dysregulation, Um, lens and then address food environment and address lifestyle factors and potentially different medical uh, agents, so liraglutide, semaglutide, other sort of uh, pharmacotherapy, potentially even surgery, and there are new indications for who gets evaluated for bariatric surgery. Um, All of these things sort of Work by fixing the appetite uh, thing first, whereas people then will uh, start responding more uh, better and be more sensitive to these um, satiety signals, and then they end up spontaneously reducing their energy intake um, because now they're getting the the signal like, hey, we've got too much energy on board; we can actually reduce our energy intake. So rather than just telling somebody to eat less and move more, or you know, just try harder, or you know, ascribing excess adiposity is a failure of willpower, what we're trying to get across is that, um, you know, obesity is a complex disease. uh, There are many different types. It's not a sort of personal failing of an individual, but rather sort of, again, you're set up with this genetic susceptibility in a particular environment. And, you know, uh, multiple factors that have all summed together to create this issue. And so uh, if we come at it from this appetite dysregulation standpoint, I think we're going to be able to have more success in actually managing um, this issue uh, and, and identifying certain treatments, behavior change, targets, etc., that are likely to be more yeah. successful.
1: Yeah, the caveats that, I, yeah, I think I like framing it in, through the lens of we don't choose to be hungry and we don't choose when we feel full or satiated from a meal. And, you know, I I, I don't think I would necessarily frame it as like people's regulation systems being broken, but rather that when they have it, uh, when they're kind of uh, genetically set up in a particular way to have this, you know, appetite hunger spectrum, it's primarily that in the context of the modern environment that's like full of like, you know, readily available uh, calorie dense, super tasty, hyper palatable Foods and things like that. If you know we could snap our fingers and change the the food environment, uh, pretty you know significantly, then um, I think these uh, genetic underpinnings would end up resulting in a vastly different kind of landscape of you know how people end up you know uh, uh, kind of progressing through their health span over time and who who might develop obesity, who might not, who might be selected for from like an evolutionary perspective, who might be selected against, et cetera, et cetera. So you know, it's a big, uh, the the big push, you know, uh, in the the, the kind of academic discussion of the obesity landscape is is really centering on this combination of the genetics and the environmental factors, controlling what you can, um, and then recognizing the things you can't control and treating it as a disease like like any other. Um, you know, you mentioned that there's a bunch of different ways, a bunch of different subtypes. It's kind of like having high blood pressure. You know, you can yeah. have high blood pressure. I could, I could start listing all the different ways people could end up with high blood pressure and go on for uh, quite a while here. <laughs> and those are evaluated and treated differently and we don't you know blame the person for like squeezing their arteries down too tight and tell them (laughs) to just like (laughs) tell them like have you tried relaxing your blood vessels more or something like just relax just just (laughs) yeah so so you know it it helps to destigmatize this because honestly like if you look at the rates of success of just like telling people eat less move more it doesn't really you know on the on a population level doesn't seem to be particularly effective and so just telling people to do that harder isn't going to make it any more effective and we are seeing pretty substantial breakthroughs um you know, in the biomedical arena, when it comes to interventions that specifically treat this kind of appetite regulation system, whether through behavioral interventions that address it, um, or, you know, medication, surgical interventions that address the, the appetite regulation thing, people suddenly, and I've had, you know, some of my patients, some of my telemedicine patients that I work with, um, they might be dealing with, uh, you know, a little excess body fat, and they're, maybe they've struggled, you know, to to manage that over time. And then we say, okay, we're going to escalate, you know, our interventions, and we try some of the uh more recent uh, medications that have become available to aid in the appetite regulation system and suddenly you know they start losing a bunch of weight and they're like wow this is like way easier than any other diet that i've tried before i can stick to it and i'm not just like ravenously hungry all the time having like to exert this massive you know conscious restraint high rpe diet kind of thing and uh instead you know it it becomes a, a you know, a a more regulated, better regulated system that allows them to in the setting of the modern environment, which we have a limited ability to modify to still achieve, you know, a more healthful kind of body composition, and improve some of their, you know, uh, any complications like lowering their blood pressure, blood sugar, things like that. So um, that's like a I guess a little brief overview, but we're going to get into things in a whole lot more detail. Both, I think, at the seminar lecture, I've been designing a lecture that I'm going to give, given that it's a new uh, academic year for uh, medical trainees. So I have mm-hmm. new medical students under me, I have new interns under me, new new residents um, that I'm working with, and so uh, you know, some some uh, educational content I would be teaching them when we're when we're working in the hospital too. So,
0: yeah, turns out writing a book has opened <laughs> our eyes <laughs> more to. I wouldn't necessarily set call it like a blind spot like oh we just you know ignored this stuff before but when you when you start getting deeper into like okay well what's causing this or like yeah. how you know why why are some people more susceptible to weight gain or weight regain or whatever yeah. and and then you start yeah you you it changes your perspective you know uh previously you, you know the the recommendation would be, well, you got to find a way to be in a calorie deficit to lose the weight. And, uh, <laughs> you know, you're going to do that with diet and exercise and then maybe some meds and plus or minus surgery if you need it. And, and I think that's not wrong technically, but as far as how understanding, like, well, how did people get here? And like, what's the principal thing you need to address? Um, I think it just, that's just not a great explanation.
1: Yeah, I think yeah. we're just moving further upstream as far mm-hmm. as like the, yep. the the causes and things like that. And the higher upstream you can get, the the more effective your intervention will end up becoming downstream.
0: Cool. So we'll just yeah. go to straight environment. Just look, we got to go to a different planet <laughs> and set the food environment up in such a way. There's You know, there's no marketing for a highly energy dense, you know, ultra processed, hyper palatable yeah. foods. And uh, no. OK, they'll probably edit that out. Uh, all right. So we got upcoming seminars. Talked about that. Now, finally, what everyone wants to know. How's how's training? How strong are you right now? Your Internet re- uh, reputation depends on this.
1: <laughs> um, I would say I am reasonably strong at the moment. Um, okay. I have in recent uh, past few months. I actually I think since probably like the beginning of the year, I was getting kind of annoyed with, uh, you know, standard uh, standard, highly powerlifting specific training at the time. Um, and so I said, I'm going to, you know, back away a little bit. And so I introduced a bit more variation, which we do from time to time, but this time I kind of put more variation in my main lifts and I started training those as if they're main lifts. And so people probably noticed that, uh, for the past six months or so, I haven't really been low bar squatting been training the high bar squat, which I haven't really, I think like before this past winter, I'd only ever done high bar squats for eights. And I'd done, like, 460 or 470 for eight, and, like, that was, you know, it. I'd never done anything for fewer reps. So, since then, I started training much fewer reps. So, you know, I think I hit, like, 507 for six, and I've done 562 for a single on high bar, and I'm pushing. I'd like to hit a 600 high bar squat, which I think would be kind of cool. been training the reverse grip bench press, which always gets the the people going, uh, it seems. Uh, what's reverse. The,
0: what's the purpose
1: of a reverse grip bench? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I get that. I seem to get that question a lot. Like what's that, what's that for? What does it do? And I'm like, do you ask this question about any other lift? Do you ask the question of what's the purpose of a squat? What's the purpose of a deadlift? It's just a movement that is consistent with your goals and you can get better at it. Uh, it's just, you know, another version of a bench who decided that a regular grip bench press has your hands turned prone. What if back in the day, yeah. somebody decided a regular grip bench was with your hands facing you, <laughs> then I everybody actually, would be asking what's the, what's the what's that other grip doing you know so
0: this would be a great coffee table book like how did we get here yeah right like, <laughs> who, who you know who's the first person to do a back squat and why was that the preferred
1: you know right exactly yeah
0: versus a front squat or
1: whatever yeah 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 so i reverse grip bench 405 which was a cool milestone to hit i've been training more sumo deadlift i've been doing both sumo and conventional every week and so i've been uh, also set more kind of arbitrary goals for myself and i said i wanted to hit um on my day one i've been doing like a high bar squat single reverse grip bench single and a paused sumo deadlift single and between the three i wanted to hit a 1600 gym total in a given day so i did that a couple weeks ago so that's kind of where i'm at more or less at the moment just training and it's fun i'm not interested in competing anytime soon um but i'd like to high bar 600 and then maybe eventually pr my low bar squat again someday it's been a little while on that front so
0: at some point yeah set apr
1: whenever i yeah, can <laughs> care enough to, 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 really push that hard. So, yeah. Uh, uh, the other, the other thing is I've been back in the pool, which I think, I don't know ooh. if I brought that up. Yeah. So a few months ago, uh, my wife convinced me to get back in the pool and for like a day just to go have some fun. And since then I've been actually going once or twice a week and swimming, which I hadn't done in like about 10 years or so was the over 10 years Was the last time I was in a pool. So I've been going once or twice a week and swimming like anywhere between 500 and a thousand meters um, which is, might sound like a lot, but for, you know, anybody who has swam competitively, it's, uh, like a 10th of what I would have done in, uh, you know, routine training before A normal practice might've been like five to 75,000 to 7,500, something like that. So a very short distance and, uh, it's been coming back and it's feeling pretty good and doesn't seem to be impairing my performance in the gym either. So, um, you know, the variation, I think all around, both in the exercise selection with the, in the gym, the barbell doing some isolation stuff, and then getting back in the pool, just moving more and in different ways is feeling good. And I'm having less kind of aches and pains and injuries uh, arise and stuff like that. So that's been my, my big change in the past six to nine months.
0: Probably, probably also just enjoying your time spent training because there's less pressure, I guess, about, you know, how you're going to perform on, Lifts that we've given an arbitrary importance to, like yep. the, you know, because the squat bench deadlift are the powerlifting, you know, specific movements, yep. and we compete in powerlifting from time to time. It's like every time you do them, you're like, even if you aren't consciously or thinking about it or vocalizing like okay well today you know this is an important squat session you know like historical performances you know like what you your expectation for your performance should be anything below that is like bad quote unquote yep anything above that is good and then you know that can set set the tone for how your training is going if you have a number of bad sessions in a row you're like oh, what is going on man and it's frustrating and whatever and, it, and if you just change the movement or alternatively, you can change the rep scheme. You're like, I've never done this rep scheme before or yep. change the context where you're doing something else beforehand and you're like, oh, well, I'm fatigued. So it's, it's not a rationalization or a way to cope necessarily. It's just a, a way to change the expectation and ultimately make it matter a little bit less to you. So I don't know.
1: Yeah. Everything I've done on those variation has been a PR pretty much. So, I'll, you know, that makes which, it kind of cool.
0: Which is fun. Yep. <laughs> yep. I, uh, I have been training. My training is actually not that you asked, but I just training- assumed you would follow. <laughs> sure. Yes. That's how conversations work. I, uh, <laughs> my training has actually been going reasonably well on my squat and my bench. I just, I'm like hub, like circling around PR levels without peaking, which is
1: kind of nice. And you've been doing insane workout, like bench stuff. You were telling me you're doing like, Oh, 14 singles at 395 or something. Like yeah, that. yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> to-
0: which is uh the cool thing is like nothing feels heavy anymore cuz it's just like yeah I've just been doing this I I don't know that I love this style of training is I think my personal bias would be like I want to work up to like one heavy yeah set one heavy single and then do back down work where it's uh that way I, it's easier for me to focus for that short period of time rather sure. than like maintain yeah. focus yeah. um but you know my work capacity is relatively high right now and I don't know sometimes
1: sometimes i'll program those kind of like multiple singles across not necessarily 14 but multiple across for people who tend to overshoot consistently because you can't overshoot like <laughs> yeah multiple, you know, singles, multiple yeah. singles in a row uh, yeah. whereas if it's just one then you can rationalize yeah i'll push it a little higher <laughs> yeah uh
0: what was not this past week because i was ill we'll talk about that in a second but the week before i had yeah it was 12 singles and um normally the way i do that is I, my like indicator weight for bench press is like 365 if i'm using yeah. pound plates or 374 if I'm using kilo plates. Mm-hmm. Uh, basically if, if 365 moves re- really fast where I can't rate it anything higher than like an RP5 or you know five and a half, I'm probably just going to 405 and then sure whatever. Uh, if it moves heavier than that, I'm like I'll take 385 and see how that feels. So but though if I have 12 singles and it's supposed to be an RP7, w- typically what I do is I go 315, 365 and then yeah. pick pick a weight. Uh so anyway, I can I went 315, 405 and I was just doing these singles probably every 3 minutes, 4 minutes whatever. And uh after it was maybe 8 or 9, I thought maybe I was like I I don't know that I'm going to miss my 10th rep, but it's going to be like yeah, hard. Yeah. So I was like the goal for this workout is not to hit a max single. The goal is to get practice at singles at a submaximal weight. So I could either try and rest longer and like generate some more chutzpah or I could just <laughs> go back down to 365 or, you know, and bang out these three singles. And I just went down to 365. So I, I think, you know, if you're listening to this and you're like, oh, you can take down the weight. It's like, yep. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's totally fine. I mean, the idea is you you have a more existing fatigue on board and you're still just trying to uh, hit uh, hit the goals for the session. And that's what I did. And it was fine. Um 405 doesn't feel heavy in my hands anymore which is that's neat yeah yeah i it's always a good day when you unrack it and you're like oh yeah this is <laughs> good, good um but no this last week so this is your fault again i just want to let you know that every bad training like experience <laughs> i've had
1: is somehow your fault um i mean you're fine to pin that on me that's that's fine
0: yeah <laughs> shout out to 2015 when your infectious you know glute <laughs> pain <laughs> infected me for for seven months you had mentioned like two weeks ago you were like yeah dude i got this really weird like i'm nauseous abdominal pain i can't eat anything i'm tired because i'm not eating anything or whatever guess i'll train and then you just you know pulled PR'd. 650
1: for a double <laughs> yeah
0: yeah exactly <laughs> and um I, when i came down and we came down to see you for your birthday i felt fine and when i got back i was like I remember I woke up Monday morning and I was like, I'm not hungry. And normally I'm like, I, that's the first thing I want to do is eat food. I was like, I'm not hungry. Ah, I'll make myself eat whatever. It's not a big deal. Ate breakfast. I've never been more nauseous. I mean, I'm obviously (laughs) overstating this, but I was like, this is bad. This is bad. This is bad. Three days of, you know, followed of not eating anything, super nauseous, abdominal pain, you know, all the rest. Uh, I was like. Why did Austin do this to me? I was everything was going so well, so I missed. Yeah, I missed my first session in four years. years. Yeah, yeah, the last previous one was like New Year's Eve. Uh, like this, the sequelae to New Year's Eve. Yeah. Um. So yeah, have to start the clock again. Uh. But this brings up a bigger question: is is, is about training when sick? We've talked about this a few times. Just like. It, both in Instagram posts and then podcasts or whatever, but I feel like we can give it a little bit of a, the barbell medicine treatment here. Um, and I was actually thinking about this while I was ill, I started the wire and, uh, in between these hour long episodes and waxing away and waning consciousness, I was like, I wonder, I wonder really if I had to tell somebody, you know, should they train when they're sick and give them like a nuanced answer, how would I do this? So Okay, I think if we start with just like the general overview of like, how does exercise affect the immune system, whatever. Uh, I know we already have a podcast on this. So if you guys really want to dive in deep, but also you would take people through like, what does exercise do to the immune system? What is the immune system? And then what does exercise do to it?
1: Yeah, it, it, just the, the brief overview is that the immune system is the 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 numerous interacting kind of components in our bodies that serve to defend us against pathogens. And pathogens are things that can cause disease, basically. Usually infectious agents like viruses or bacteria, fungus, things like that. Um, and we get asked, I'd say, a fair amount of questions because the assumption is that doing any amount of physical exertion will like weaken your immune system. That's right. And and uh. That's not necessarily uh, the right takeaway, I think. From this, we do get into this a fair amount more in our um, uh, podcast on this particular topic. But um, you know, exercise has n- you know numerous effects on multiple systems all throughout the body, not just the immune system, on the cardiovascular system, on the you know endocrine, you know, all kinds of hormones and muscles and and, and a variety of things and so to the extent that there are some impacts on immune function after you know a reasonable amount of exercise meaning like not Uh, people who in the ultra endurance realm would be diagnosed with like quote the overtraining syndrome Um, people who are you know regular folks doing a reasonable amount of training exercise actually seems to uh, ramp up some immune activities certain immune functions Um, it tends to wake up certain cells that will go around your body hunting for you know pathogens or or non-self kind of things that they can they can deal with Um, it even has been shown to increase the response uh, to vaccination which is particularly mm-hmm. relevant these days where people who do some sort of physical activity physical exertion uh, around the time of vaccination seem to get a little bit better uh, uh, you know um, immunogenicity or or immune generating effects from vaccination compared to you know if you did that you just like sat and did nothing. Um, and so, you know, for, for our purposes, when we feel quote unquote sick, there are some considerations because being, you can be sick in a whole bunch of different ways. And some are, you know, pretty severe debilitating what we'd call febrile illnesses where you have, you know, potentially high fevers and things where you're, you know, more likely to be pretty significantly contagious. And those are things where, yeah, might, not be wise to go and do, uh, do a, uh, particularly lengthy, particularly hard training session. It doesn't mean that you're better off doing nothing and being completely sedentary. Like movement mm. is not going to set you back or harm you, but you also have to consider the environment that you'd be doing this exercise. in. would you be exposing other people to what you have? That's generally a bad look. Uh, if you can avoid that versus <laughs> if you have a garage like I do to go, you know, I'm, it takes a, it takes a lot for me to say, I'm not even going to go out there and do anything, even if it's like an empty bar thing or hop on the the air bike or, or, or do some isolation work or something. I'd have to be pretty in pretty bad shape to, to even say I wasn't going to do that. So um, what do you think?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's the same. H- if I had a home gym, I probably still would have missed on Tuesday. That bad, huh? <laughs> I mean, I just, my basically every time I stood up, I was very, very nauseous and yeah. I was like, and throwing up honestly for me is the worst. I'd rather have a fracture or like, or whatever. Cause I just, <laughs> I can't stand it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I'm in agreement, you know, The data here, it's not nothing, but the problem with illness, particularly infectious illnesses, is that there's so many different infections that you can get. So like saying a generalized statement like exercise reduces the risk of infection. It's like, okay, but which infections? And it's like we have data on mononucleosis. So the Epstein-Barr virus is one of the main causes of that, like a bunch of different herpes um, uh, viruses chicken pox etc uh, so we feel reasonably confident that like regular exercise actually reduces the risk of infection with those agents uh, but not all infectious agents um, we know that exercise increases like you said the response to vaccinations greater antibody titers is how they measure that um, so in a, yeah exercise is good we nobody's disputing that when should you not exercise? I, I agree. It's like if you're posing an infectious risk to people, yeah, probably I would avoid that. And then if you if you feel like go, you're not an infectious risk, but you're feeling so bad that that actually actual movement for you is just not something that you can tolerate. Yeah. Well, I don't have to tell you to not exercise. You're just you're just not going to do it. You know, I, I, I would try to train if you can. But then if you <laughs> it's just a, it's just this is just like a, a generalized statement. But if you if you honestly can't like, OK, well, that's the time you're not going to train. It's not going to be a huge deal if you miss a session. the The issue is that if you miss a bunch of sessions and this becomes like a obstacle or barrier for you to like continue the behavior, the healthy behavior pattern that you were engaged in. If that was your routine, if you were going at a certain time every day and now that, like, you know, you are missing a bunch of sessions, that's probably the the real risk. I don't care if you miss a day in the gym, you know, or two days. That that's not a huge deal, provided you just can get back on it. But a lot of people what'll happen is they'll get sick and then, you know, a few missed sessions beget many missed sessions. And they're like, ah, I haven't been in the gym in a week or a month. And it's like, well, probably didn't need to do all that. You know,
1: and there's a lot of reasons why that can happen. I think within our community, within our audience, one particularly uh, uh, prevalent way, a reason why that can happen is the reasons of why people train and their uh, kind of where their values are. And so, what I mean by that is f- for people who view the absolute weight on the bar as being like the <laughs> yeah. determinant of the value of a training session. Right. So if you say the only you know, this workout is only worthwhile if I can exceed what I did last time or what I did last week, for example, then the natural conclusion is, oh, if I'm sick, I'm not going to be able to beat what I did last session or last week. And so this session would therefore be worthless and I'm going to skip it uh, until I feel well again. And then when you come back, you're going to be weaker and then you're going to beat yourself up because you're (laughs) and you are going to quit. something like that right right whereas you know for our perspective the training itself is enjoyable and valuable to us we you know it's something that keeps us coming back and i also don't necessarily dichotomize like sedentary behavior versus training as like just two distinct things it's all just like a spectrum of movement and so even when i felt you know the first day i felt you know particularly bad um you know when i had my bout with food poisoning last month um you know the the first day it was when it was at its worst i still went out to my garage and i think i like RDL 135 or something like that right and so that's it's like a trivial weight but I was moving it around and I just view that as like some some movement it was you can call it you know quote unquote training or whatever these were exercise and training this the stuff that people get all worked up about but just movement and it's what I wanted to do and ultimately I felt fine and I've felt better and like more accomplished after doing that compared to if I had just like lounged around. Now, if you're like, like you said, you can't even tolerate like getting up and walking across your house to go do that because you're, you have bad vertigo or you're actively vomiting. Yeah, that's a different story. Um, but that session still had value in many ways. I would say both psychologically, physiologically made me, made me feel better. May have, who knows, may have altered the duration of how long I felt bad, yeah. May have may have mitigated, uh, you know, uh, or prevented some soreness that I would have experienced otherwise, you know, a couple of days later, had I skipped that session, hard, hard to know some of all those things. But um, I wouldn't really, that's kind of how I would aim to shift people's views on this is like sessions where you don't, you know, sessions where you don't, you uh, keep adding weight to the bar every time or every week or something like that, they still have plenty of value. And I think people's like lower bound for where a session (laughs) becomes not valuable is probably too high, meaning that you can still get value out of tons of sessions, even if the load goes down markedly.
0: Yeah, The only reason I know about this is because I'd recently gotten in an internet argument with some health professionals that were advocating that if you're sick above the head for what is I don't even know what the thing is. It's like, if you're sick above the head, don't, you can't exercise. If it's below the neck, you're fine or something it's, like it's made up. Yeah. Just hundred percent made up. I don't even remember. Cause I remember <laughs> looking at it and go, this is just made up. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so invariably when challenging them on this, cause I was like, why are you putting this out there? This is not helpful to anybody because again, it's just made up. It's just giving, providing another barrier or uh, for people to be physically active. And again, just telling people to rest without, any sort of nuance they were like well what about the myocarditis risk viral myocarditis from people have like a viral infection and then they exercise there's mouse data showing uh, that that there's an increased risk of viral myocarditis there's a few case reports in the literature and i was like all right cool so there is a non-zero risk of getting viral myocarditis after a viral infection period yes does that increase with exercise, and we don't have data showing that it does. The existing data is like, sometimes that happens and sometimes it doesn't. Exercise doesn't appear to be this like, you know, certainly not a markedly increased risk. Um, You may exacerbate or increase the risk of being diagnosed with viral viral myocarditis if you're very active because you're going to become symptomatic sooner than if you're just lounging around.
1: Yeah. You're more likely to notice. You're like, hey, this thing that I'm used to being able to do, I might not. But I mean, I've diagnosed lots of viral myocarditis in in people. I have a selection bias because I see patients in the hospital. hospital, So the, the sickest people are the ones who come to me. I wouldn't say it's something that's hugely prevalent but of the cases that i see it's typically in people who just got sick and then they develop this thing and they're you know not you know hard training or or super active or or even particularly sedentary they're just normal people living their lives and there's some risk of that happening with effectively you know most like i would say respiratory viruses can can uh, can tr- precipitate something like that but it's not something that's worth being worried about or considering for like really anybody out there as far as would this change what i do if i no 100 no, no it does not <laughs> no
0: that's what i'm saying I'm, i was trying to think of conditions where i was like i absolutely would not recommend somebody to train and i was like if you had like splenomegaly from like a really gnarly bout of mono m- maybe i guess but then i'm like I, I i just don't know that i would tell you to not move Like, don't do any physical
1: activity. Those typically relate to impacts. And for people who have already developed myocarditis or or pericarditis, sometimes there can be some exercise limitations placed on those folks, although those are are from like uh, opinion-based guidelines. Um, But preemptively, like, oh, I I got a cold. I better not exercise. Otherwise, I'm going to get this thing. No, that's not really the the Ah. thing that is worth being worried about.
0: Yeah, consider the infectious risk that you're putting people at if you're able to like ambulate to the gym, (laughs) (laughs) I I would, I would, I would exercise. Uh, And again, I'm not dichotomizing exercise and training. I'm just saying I would go to the gym, whatever your training set, your session was supposed to be. I would start out with the plan that you're going to do that without any modification. But if fatigue is notably higher, you're using RPE or some other sort of auto regulation mechanism like reps and reserve or bar velocity or whatever you're using at the time can shift the load on the bar can change how much volume you're doing right if you notice like hey typically i'm able to do or the workout says i'm supposed to do five sets of five and after your second set of five for example at that's already at a lighter weight because your fatigue has moved even slower and you're like wow my fatigue levels are higher just like go to the next exercise effectively you, you would use auto regulation the whole way through to like determine what you're going to do also if you feel not great and but you're like i'm going to go do something Maybe you can push back a high priority session to you if you are, you know, if you're like, I'm supposed to comp squat, comp bench, (laughs) it's a squat bench deadlift day. Yeah, (laughs) Maybe you need that. that, Yeah. To something else. Oh, I'm doing leg press, feet up bench and, you know, pull ups or whatever. If if you care, that's again, (laughs) I mean, it's just like if you were in meat prep or whatever, or you like the sessions really, really mattered. Um, If you do have a prolonged illness though, and you're like out of the gym for a, substantial period of time or you haven't been training for a long period of time um that would probably be the time to take a deload um which i want to talk about briefly because we get a lot of questions on like when is it time to take a deload what is a deload how do you do a deload etc so like what is a deload a deload is a period of reduced loading hence, hence the, the terminology. The goal there is to preserve existing fitness adaptations while reducing fatigue. Uh, sometimes you'll hear this referred to as like a low stress week, a pivot, washout, a taper is technically a deload as well. You're reducing loading um, in an effort to de- dissipate fatigue uh, without decaying any of those existing fitness adaptations. So your performance potential goes up. This can last for days to weeks. The reason why you do it after like an acute uh, period of, either reduced training or uh, absence of training is because effectively you've reduced your tolerance to training. And so like if you were to jump right back in to a high volume, high intensity program, that might not work out very well for you. You might be uh, overstepping your your current tolerance for training. So in my example, for I missed one day this week, I don't need like to take a deload week. But if I had missed the whole, the rest of the week, like really just laid up, the idea of me jumping back into, all right, you got nine sets of three on squad and 14 singles on the bench. <laughs> it, it. It's not that I couldn't have done it at some weight. It's just that as programmed, I would have had to modify something to like re- get back into that. So which would be a deload, you can reduce the intensity, you could reduce the volume, or you could reduce both. It kind of just depends on why you're doing it. Um, so that brings up the next question is like, when would you take a deload? And the way I like to think about this, there are three like main, uh, uh, like reasons, physiological, psychological, and then logistical. So from a physiological standpoint, if you're super sore, pain is increasing, um, anything like that. And you're like, man, you're just feeling super beat down and it's persistent. It's not just like one day. If it's one day, I'm not worried about it. But if it's like, yeah, for the last two weeks, I've noticed increasing soreness that's not dissipating, you know, over the course of a week, it's not I'm not adapting to this. Uh, for example, it's just getting worse. Pain is is getting substantially worse. Um, that would be those would be reasons to consider a deload. Uh, and that's usually coinciding with a sustained performance drop. Like all my estimated one RMS are going down my top sets weights are going down. Yeah. Uh, and psychologically, like if your motivation to participate in the activity is waning because everything's a grind or you're just not, uh, seeing the results that you want to see because of maybe these physiological symptoms, if environmental stress is high, it's like, oh, it's finals week and my, you know, uh, uh priorities are elsewhere. Those would be good reasons. Um, and then the final part is like this logistical thing. So if there's a change in training goals, if you're like, all right, I'm switching from a strength-focused block to hypertrophy focus block, or I want to do a block of endurance training, you got a meet coming up, traveling, vacation, whatever, uh, where you, don't, you have reduced access to the gym or reduced time to spend in the gym. Um, those would all be good times to do a deload. So again, you can, any one of those things, but that's when I'm typically communicating with clients, I'm like, either they'll ask one, ask for one, because again, we have this uh, relationship where they f- are f- feel like they can communicate about their training. They don't just feel like I have to do it. Otherwise coach is going to be disappointed. <laughs> They're like, Hey, I think I need a deload. And then I'm going ask them like, Hey, thank you. Or tell them, Hey, thanks for the feedback. Uh, what, what's making you say that? Like what's, what's going on? And I kind of just want to figure out like, um, is this physiological? Like, am I, you know, hammering them with maybe too much? Is this like an acute environmental stress thing, something outside of the training, this um, is this motivational and I'm not trying to separate the mind from the body here. I'm just kind of like, wh- where's this coming from?
1: It might have an impact. For example, if you come back after the deload, do you get them back into something similar because it may have been working well, but they just got to, you know, accumulate a little too much fatigue, or if it's, you know, more of a, a, monotony or a motivation or an interest or something like that, then you're like, okay, when we come back from this deload, I'm going to need to do some other, change some other things up to, to keep them engaged and enjoying and to, uh, enjoying the process.
0: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's the whole thing, right? It's like
1: it's all it's, based on subjective feedback from the client.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So as far as how to do this, uh, again, lower you can lower the volume. So that's reps time, sets, um, or if it's this is, you're talking about endurance, load, just duration, uh, and or the intensity. It really just depends on how, like, why you're doing it, and then what's the goal for the subsequent training. So basically, if you're keeping a similar training. Um, emphasis or priority so i'm going from one strength focused block to another strength focused block the the only i'm going to tweak the volume or tweak the exercise selection i'm going to do whatever but i do need this period of lower stress because i'm feeling beat up performance is going down motivation is waning whatever then i would do something like let's if you were doing previously five sets of five i would do one set of five or two sets of five at a similar load The the whole goal is to preserve, again, these fitness adaptations while reducing fatigue. So literally cutting the volume down, you know, by by a substantial amount would would do that. Um, That's one way to swing it. If you're changing training goals, you're going from, ah, this is a general strength development block to like a specialization phase to get ready for a meet. Um, You would go from, again, that same five sets of five example to doing like a single at seven or eight and then three sets of two at 80%. Or something like that or even just a single at seven i mean the whole thing is again where where are you going next and how is this training week setting you up for that setting you up for that yep yeah uh the other way to do it and this is kind of how i personally do most of my uh pivot weeks like just for myself or or deload weeks or low stress weeks if i especially if i'm chained if i'm moving to a similar block but just with, with changing maybe the total load or exercises I'll do this, what I like, I just call it a washout, where I'm picking different exercises and rep schemes. Um, the idea is like, all right, I have no expectations for these exercises, or, or just relatively low expectations, because I'm not familiar with them. Um, I am avoiding any sort of overuse kind of thing, because these are totally different exercises. So I'm not just hammering the same thing over and over again. And there, it's just less important. So I'm just like, I'm going to the gym, not like trying to maximize my performance in the gym. I'm just you know, going through the motions to, again, preserve those fitness adaptations. So it's like if I was uh, previously just focusing on the low bar squat for somewhere between four to six reps, maybe now I'm going to do high bar back squat or front squats or safety squat bar squats for sets of 10, like and work up to one set of 10, just different bench press instead of that. Maybe I'll do overhead press or incline bench or feet up bench or duffalo bar bench press like whatever you know you can literally pick anything the whole thing is just pick a similar movement type but different exercise change the rep scheme up do it for a week uh and then jump into your next training block uh the last thing i'll say about this is you it doesn't have to be a week long it could be days or it could be multiple weeks it really again it just depends so like (sighs) I think by convention, everything falls into week long things, you know, and the weeks always start on Sunday or Monday. Just that's just how a lot of people kind of set their life up. But um, what I have been doing with some clients is when I've they f- are saying, "Hey, I think I'm going to need a deload," or like I'm feeling a little beat up, or you know, or even logistically, we're like, "Hey, we got to we're prepping for a meet. We're going to switch training focuses here." Uh, I'll have them have like a last high priority session on like a Monday they'll have like a heavy squat and bench focused day on Monday. And then I'll do a deload for Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, or just the last two sessions of the week, for example, um, or people who've had this like sustained psychological uh, kind of, kind of thing uh, where they're like, I do training. I just, I hate it right now. Like, I don't know. And so I would, uh, I, at that point I might stretch out a deload for two weeks, three weeks to try to like get them an entry point where, I'm starting to enjoy stuff. There's less, you know, negative uh, psychological associations with the gym. Same thing uh, if someone has an injury, right? This might be a deload for a protracted period of time where you're working back into it. So there are no hard rules, hard and fast rules, uh, uh, or sorry, there are no strict rules about deloads. But I just think when conceptually you're you're thinking about when to do a deload, you do it when there are, uh, you know. Uh, physiological issues, or psychological issues, or logistical uh, things coming up. And then overall, you're just going to reduce the volume and or the intensity. And there are many different ways to do this. just kind of depends on the person's preferences and then how you your style as a coach or, or programming. Do you do anything differently? Or is that pretty much...
1: I'd say that the way I go about this is uh, pretty variable. So for myself, I can't say that I've really done like a dedicated deload week in a very long time. I think Same. for like the past you know year or so, I've been doing a lot more of kind of a, a lower fatigue training approach and just being way more flexible with my load selection compared mm. to what I would have done maybe a couple of years ago. And so there may be periods or sessions where the weight is a little bit less than the prior week or the prior session, but, I, but, but it doesn't end up extending to the, to the entire week. Um, and so that ties into what you were saying that, like, I think sometimes people do get too locked into this, like, seven-day weekly schedule that is made up in, in society. And I've had, you know, when you're very well-trained, very well-conditioned, you have a high work capacity, all that kind of stuff, your recovery is relatively quick and good. And so, you know, just because you start to build up some fatigue and and feel beat down doesn't mean that, hey, let's say that that last hard session was on a Friday that you need that weekend off the entire next week, the subsequent weekend off, and then the next Monday before you can get back to real training. That's, again, kind of an arbitrary duration. Rather, I tend to follow a lot more the subjective kind of athlete reporting. If they tell me, you know, I'm feeling beat down, then I say, all right, we can back off for a couple sessions. I might modify, say, the next one to two sessions and then get a new kind of piece, point of feedback and say, hey, are we feeling, you know, are we popping back up again? Are we starting to feel feel better again? So sometimes I'll have people who do, you know, two back off sessions and then they're able to get back to regular training on the latter half of the next week or or it might even be one or they might say, I don't need the actual prescription to change. I'll just adjust the weight. You know, and and follow the programming as it's written and see how I feel, you know, on the back end. So so there's a ton of flexibility. Um, some some folks similar to, to, to me, we have not needed any dedicated deload periods. Some people really seem to enjoy having like, you know, uh, a dedicated week where they can kind of feel like they can chill out both psychologically and and physically. Um uh, or, or, Hey, I'm, uh, I'm approaching a test day. And then right after my test day, I'm going to be, you know, going off to party for, you know, a, yeah. a bachelor bachelor party or something like that. It's like, okay, well cool, That's a reasonable situation to do that. So, so like you said, there's no, uh, real rules here. Um, a lot of it should be based on the, the athlete's subjective reporting and their, their, uh, kind of where they are in their training relative to a high priority event. If, if there is one like a meet or something like that, and then kind of, uh, uh, learning with them along the way, what they respond well to, what they prefer, what they, what they don't prefer. So I've myself, like at this point, I really don't prefer, uh, like an entire quote unquote low stress week where like the volumes and intensities, uh, are low across the board for the whole week. I haven't done that in a long time in my own training. Yep. Some clients still want it. Some want it for part of a week. You know, it's just super flexible.
0: Yeah, yeah. I, I think if you are finding yourself regularly deloading, like once every once a month, yeah. right? The old five yeah. three one yeah. kind of setup, yeah. or or once every five weeks, um just. I know a lot of this has to do with expectations about how the training block is going to go and like maybe your own personal capacity or limitations or whatever. But, but I would start to not question, but maybe just look, look a little more closely at the programming and like, why is it that you, we can predict when you need this deload or why, why is that? Are we setting you up for that? Meaning that the the training is not appropriate for you to have the sustained, successful, you know, programming. Um, That being said, like all of our templates have deloads and low stress weeks built in. And the idea is like we know that we're trying to make these uh, appropriate and useful for a wide, you know, general population who's into training with barbells. And it's like, you know, on average, people are going to need a deload, you know, every fifth week or sixth week or whatever but the an an individual is not an average right and i if and and i don't have the ability to like adjust these based on individuals preferences needs and responsiveness but like most of my clients now we're deloading taking an actual deload you know at once every two months maybe yeah And and it's kind of like out of nowhere like you don't you can't really predict it sure uh it's more like huh that's uh
1: all right well, and oftentimes I start digging when I hear that because oftentimes we can reveal, oh, this happened in my life or, you know, so it's actually very often, you know, coinciding with stuff that's happening outside the gym. Um and then once that goes away, we see training performance like pop back up pretty nicely for, for a lot of folks. But yep. yes, I'm glad, you know, I was if you hadn't anticipated that, because we we can anticipate that that uh question arising where people would say, well, the templates have these and they're they're in there. And yeah, you know, it's it's a valid question, but I think it's important to recognize that hey, there are numerous inherent limitations to a to a sure. template that's not individualized, and that's part of the contrast between that and an individualized kind of uh coaching relationship. And the other thing is, you know, we'll often get questions like, hey, I'm running this template and things are going really great and weights going up every week. And I'm pro, I'm set to do this deload or low stress week yeah. next no, week. Do I need going. to do it, or should I keep going? And we're like, no. You're de- you're illustrating this very phenomenon of like you're responding really well. You don't need the deal. You can keep doing the same you know weekly deal until you you know demonstrate that you need it, or until something arises, and then you know you know that it's there as an option for you. Um, these things are not you know you don't have to do what's on the paper just because it's on the paper or on the screen. Um, these things are malleable, and you can modify them to your needs and preferences and, and all that's uh, all that's fair game.
0: Yeah, just want to give people a structure that's useful and kind of show people how we how we program. Um, yeah, the actual new template is just my phone number. You just, what I'm going to do is sell it and you can just text me and ask me and I'll just... <laughs>
1: ask me just what do.
0: <laughs> yeah, what do, yeah, figure it out. All right, so hopefully this uh, podcast so far has been useful, but now this is what people really want to know. We should have led with this, just like hook people in the first few minutes. You know, everyone wants to know, what you're what you're reading what you're watching like what's <laughs> what is austin doing like that could be its whole instagram <laughs> account by itself uh did you just finish the uh uh the book on the sacklers
1: yeah so empire of pain was uh, one of the recent books that i read by uh, patrick radden keith which was excellent and so that book uh is basically a history of uh, everything that led up to the opioid epidemic in the in the U.S. and it kind of traces the family that that uh, ultimately owns uh, Purdue Pharma, going all the way back to like the the OG Sackler who immigrated to the U.S. back in like the early 1900s, and it traces his family and his family tree and their kind of uh, how they ended up getting into medicine and then uh, uh, you know pharmacotherapy and then pain meds and opioids in particular and then the marketing schemes and all the stuff that um, led to the you know uh, 90s 2000s um, uh, opioid crisis so that was a very well done history for anybody who's interested in the topic strongly recommended um, I think you read it too yeah uh, yeah I'm about
0: mm, three quarters of the way through oh, getting
1: through it yeah I do you read multiple books at the same time uh, typically not, no, because yeah, I have a bunch right. of podcasts that I mm. that I that's the other because I do a ton of medical podcasts to stay basically I've got to stay uh, uh, ahead of my residents and students so I got to stay yeah, sharp right, on yeah. stuff so I do I do like one book at a time and then and then a bunch of podcasts to to stay sharp on stuff there yeah so I have I usually have one book
0: like Audible going at a time and then one like physical book that I'll like tote around or keep keep in a bathroom or something so the other book I'm reading is Deep Work by Cal Newport. I, which I'd had, I've had it for a long time. And I think I read maybe the first chapter once, but then forgot about it. It's just a pretty cool book about doing important work and like how do in this very distractible environment. So, uh, what about, are you watching? Like I just started the wire. I, I, well, think, I think
1: that was based on my recommendation. Yeah. Yes. And then also <laughs> I was like, I need
0: something that I'm not going to be done with. Like, I want to have something to look forward to, to yes, watch for yes. a while. I feel like it's yes. going on
1: forever. Yeah, The Wire, no question, is my favorite TV series of all time. Watched it, you know, in the early two thousands, um, and watched it in med school with uh, with uh, my wife, and then we recently actually rewatched the whole series just because it's fantastic. So, um, for anybody who hasn't seen it, definitely would recommend.
0: Also, I don't know if you know this, Doctor Death. That's It's on NBC.
1: So oh, they're trying to get into
0: a series. It's it's in a, it's into yeah. a series. They did it. Oh wow! Yeah, okay. or it's on Peacock, which is like NBC's <laughs> like streaming service. Oh, yeah. I'm not yeah. paying for that shit. <laughs> well, yeah, but also, what is it? Five days from now, you know, what's starting the Olympics. Cue Olympic music right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited. Like, I'm bummed that there's not going to be fans there, and I'm also bummed that we couldn't like. I just want to go to the Olympics. I, I, I don't. Okay, hold, let me be clear. I don't – I'm not competing in the Olympics, all right? <laughs> right. Like if – yeah, unless nuance becomes like an Olympic sport, like there's no way that I'm getting there. Uh, but I would love to go. There. It's Paris in 2024. It's L.A. in 2028. I feel like I'd go to L.A. We have some opportunities, yeah. 100%. Yep. It's going to be so much fun. 621 U.S. athletes going this year, <laughs> which I feel like is a lot. Uh, and the mo- the most interesting thing is there's over a 40-year age spread between our youngest and oldest oh, wow. competitor. Huh. The oldest competitor, he's 57 years old, Philip Dutton. He's an equestrian, which is interesting because he's competed in, for Australia before, but now he's competing for the United States. Huh. So interesting how you can just change. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, moving on. And the youngest is Katie Grimes. She's 15
1: yep that's crazy she, she she qualified i think in like the 400 or the 800 freestyle and swimming i watched her race
0: yes pretty cool uh okay so the trivia question is who in olympic history has the most olympic medals i don't know <laughs> no guesses <laughs> no
1: <laughs> and you're a swimmer i just feel like i mean I, that's the i feel like the obvious guess but that's also like the only sport that i pay particularly correct. close attention to you would have been right it's, that's it's why spelt, I, I threw you spelt, a lobber spelt, yeah. Spelt, yeah okay yeah
0: 28 medals Savage. 10 more than anybody else yeah <laughs> that's crazy um also shout out to leah leah lutz our uh another one of our barbell medicine coaches she got it just got an invite today for ipf uh bench worlds all right which are held in kazakhstan <laughs> are you serious <laughs> yeah because i was like when she said be the text message i was like wait where is kazakhstan
1: yeah <laughs> Anyway, why do they why do they pick these places? I'm not, I don't understand. I don't know. I, like, and, and, my understanding was Belarus was like pretty unsafe for like worlds to be at twice, right? <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah. So I don't know if she goes, I might try to like, I might try to go. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't, I just would otherwise never go. Of to course, K- yeah, Kazakhstan. sure. But yeah, like, yeah. Russia's right there. That seems like it'd be a good time. Just imagine hey, hey. the selfie <laughs> getting like you know. <laughs> I, I don't know, man. I think that'd be cool to, to check out because yeah, I've yeah i never been there. And yeah. uh, I don't know that we're going to schedule a Barbell Medicine Seminar in Moscow anytime soon, but I'd, yeah, I'd check that not. out. Yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, anything else? I think that's it. All right. It. Episode 148. With Dr. Austin Baraki here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, again, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. Uh, links to any of the stuff that we discussed in the podcast today are going to be in the description below. Before you guys head out of here, please leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast so we don't have to do this you know, ad read at the beginning and end and middle of every podcast. We'll just keep bringing it to you for free as more people listen. like this. We'll just do it. Otherwise, like, we're going to have to start reading, like, different grooming products and, like, you know, home testing stuff for medical, you know, stuff. I th- and it's-
1: I think that's when I uh, hang up the old headphones and mic. <laughs> yeah, they're right. Then, and then
0: Austin retires and then it's just me. And honestly, nobody wants that. So, yes, please uh, leave us a five-star rating and review. And uh, we'll see you guys next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast.